Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we're delighted to have Professor Will McClay. Uh, professor McClay is a professor of history at Hillsdale College. Uh, prior to that, he was the uh, professor, the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair of History and Liberty at the University of Oklahoma and director for their Center of History uh, of Liberty there. Um, he's the author of several books, but one of the book that we'll be discussing mainly today is called The Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. And it was uh, came out in 2019 and has uh, been used around the country as a textbook, um, American history textbook for colleges. and. Uh, in fact, I used it uh, last semester when I taught at uh, South Dakota State. Um, so I have experience of, of taking students through it, which was a good experience. Um, Will also serves as advisory board for the NEH and is a member, and I'd like to also discuss this in our conversation today, member of the Semi-Quincentennial Commission um, for the upcoming 250th birthday of the United States. He's a graduate of St. John's uh, College in Annapolis, and uh, he got his Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins. Uh, welcome to History 605, Will. Thank you, Ben. I'm really very, very pleased to be with you. Um, th this book has uh, uh, kind of reshaped a bit, at least of how uh, a person like me, who's, who's uh, teaching a college history course on the United States, um, might uh, approach the subject. And I think one of the most striking things uh, that was uh, s kind of laying the groundwork for um, how the book approaches it is the epigraph. Um, I was wondering yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about John Dos Passos, who provides the epigraph to your book. Yes, John Dos Passos was uh, a very uh, distinguished uh, and path-breaking pioneering experimental American novelist uh, in the early part of the, America, uh, of the, of the 20th century, and uh, actually was quite politically radical um, mm. during the 20s. You know, one of the great uh, sort of culture war issues of that time was the Sacco Vanzetti case, Yes, um, in which uh, all kinds of uh, anxieties having to do with immigrants and um, uh, cities versus, versus country life, and all, all these things that are sort of features of the 20s seem to kind of come together and 
Dos Passos was famous for saying, declaring, all right, we are two countries. Uh, a familiar mm-hmm. <laughs> theme mm-hmm. in American history, actually. Right. Uh, uh, but uh, he was very much on the radical side. I uh, was a member of the Communist Party for a time, was uh, um, involved in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and so on. Oh, really? In the Civil War. Oh, yeah. He yeah. went to Spain. And, uh, he, was, like, he was an ambulance driver, like... Uh, just like uh, Hemingway. Yeah, Hemingway. Hemingway, yes. Yeah. Wow. And, um, uh, and he was very much of that generation. Yeah. Although Hemingway was more, less political, less overtly political. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Dos Passos, uh, and he wrote, I don't want to go on too long about it, but he, he wrote uh, a trilogy called USA, which was an effort to kind of convey some of the sweep and variety of, of American life uh, and using all sorts of advanced techniques, including stream of consciousness, a sort of uh, uh, teletype, um, you know, sections interspersed. It's very imaginative uh, uh, and uh, very experimental for its time. Uh, It probably would be now. Anyway, that was a big success, but he, uh, uh, for various reasons, he he, uh, changed his mind about a lot of things. And by... um, by the time uh, the late thirties, uh, early forties, he was uh, quite disenchanted with the left, uh, at least the hard left, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of fell in love with America. He he understood uh, for, what the, for the first time really what the Constitution was about, what um, the, the traditions of liberty and the in the country were about, and he decided to delve into that past and write about it. Um, So he wrote, he published a book um, called The Ground We Stand On, and the the essay, uh, The Use of the Past, from which the epigraph comes, appears in there. The essay was written in 1941, Uh, not not after, but well before Pearl Harbor. so it, it reflects that moment, a, a moment in which, uh, and it's really hard to convey this to young people, as you know, but the world really, really was on a, on a precipice of, yeah. of a plunge into a darkness. I mean, Hitler controlled the entire European continent. Mm-hmm. Only the British Isles held out, and for who knew for, for how long, against Hitler's it really incomparable war machine. Of course, he has also hadn't invaded Russia yet. That, that, right. that, but but uh, <clears throat> but at a very scary moment. And at this moment, the special publishes this essay, and in it is the epigraph, which I won't read, but I'll just paraphrase that that um, a sense of the past uh, can be like a lifeline at getting us through scary times. Mm-hmm. Helping us to realize we've we've been in scary times before, and we've endured. And uh, people in the past have faced problems very much like the ones we face. Yeah. And we need to know what they did, how they did it, how they get, came through. Mm-hmm. So I thought uh, I did think. Not only did I think that was a great epigraph, it was the first thing I did. I came up with the title and the and the epigraph. And I kept them by my desk, by my computer monitor, the whole time I worked on this to remind myself mm-hmm. what it was that I uh, that I was trying to do with this book. And um, the title is 
significant too. We can talk about that too, right. like. But the the notion that hope as a principle and with a lot of different meanings, hope is a theological word. Hope is also reflects a desire for improvement in one's economic status, and that it seemed to me that whatever you do with with all of the dark aspects of American history, and there are many, and I don't blink them at all yeah, no, uh, in don't. this book, um, yeah. that you would really be missing the boat, it seems to me, if, if you leave out of account this element, which I think is a spiritual element in the American, uh, American character, the character of those who are drawn across the seas and from other places to to come here and try their luck mm-hmm. it, it's uh, it's i think with the exception of those who were brought here in in bondage uh, that's an important part of the story sure. but uh, but with that exception i think you do you see uh, this sense that uh, america is a place where the principle holds that we sh- no one is condemned to live their life under the conditions into which they were born, that right. they that, that we all uh, have the potential to rise in the world, and uh, a country that gives us that opportunity is to be <laughs> something to be very thankful for. So right. I think it's I think it's still true. I think that you wouldn't have people swarming into the country um, uh, from all over the place. Right. Uh, uh, still, if we were not still a land of opportunity, so right. uh, uh, that, but that, thank you for asking about the epigraph. That, that's something that I think is people usually pass over that when they read a book. Right. You know, it's right. some nifty quotation, and it's really the essence of the book. Right. <laughs> it's the epigraph. Well, I, I, uh, I had the students kind of run through that and and really kind of ask them all um, what they thought of it, and I think the thing they struggled with, and you kind of alluded to this. The most was um, part of the quote uh, that talks about you, it's a lifeline which you talked about across the scary present and get us past that idiot delusion of the exceptional now. And, yeah. the, and the students really had a tough time trying to get past their present understanding of the way the world works. And, and many of yeah. them really struggled to understand what he was talking about there. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, there's several things going on there. I mean, I think there. The, one thing, you know, I have the same experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, one thing, they stumble over the use of the term idiot. Yeah. Because they think this is a sort of forbidden word used for the, those who are um, mentally challenged or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise have a, have a sort of cognitive problem that's, Inherent that they have from birth, uh, um, and that, that the, the, the older meaning, the Greek meaning of uh, idiot, idiot, idios, uh, is uh, something closer to uh, uh, is isolation, insulation, um, insularity. Um, oh, okay. The the uh, the insularity. Of the idea, you know, Marx used this phrase in the Communist Manifesto. He talked about the idiocy of country life. He didn't mean that all the people running around in the country were were, were stupid mm-hmm. um, or or mentally impaired. He meant that it is a very self-contained, provincial, isolated world. 
So the, the idiot delusion, it's the kind of self-absorbed delusion yeah. uh, that, that now is unprecedented. There's nothing that's ever happened before in history right. that can give us any insight into <laughs> what is involved in work. We're living in a world with iPhones right. or, you know, you name it, right. uh, uh, deep faking. Which yeah. is actually very scary, but uh, there's a lot about the future and, and the technological innovations that, that, that is frightening. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's it's a self impoverishment that that kids um, uh, sort of take on themselves. Although I, in a way, I can't blame them. All right. Uh, the idea that there's nothing in the past that's, any, that's relevant anymore. The Constitution mm-hmm. was addressing 18th century problems. We've got 21st century problems, uh, which is actually a rather idiotic way to think yeah. that, that nothing in the human experience could shed any light on uh, uh, you know, questions what I think we're facing right now, questions of diplomacy. How do you, how do you deal with... Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, with the, with sticky diplomatic situations, they've always been with us, right? Um, right. And there's a lot to learn yeah. from both the successes and the mistakes of the past. Yeah. Um, in, but of course, military history and diplomatic history are things that that are not, not studied anymore. Um, uh, we do we do in Hillsdale, but we're kind of an exception yeah. um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, I think the, so. I, I think that this this is you. You've hit that. I I have the same problem that they're, they're offended a little bit by the idiot delusion mm-hmm. of the unprecedented now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's exactly right. That if there's any value to history, and I think there's enormous value to history, it's it's not so much that that history is this compendium of of uh, you know uh, uh, imperishable insights. Because everything, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. Right. Uh, it it ra- rarely even rhymes, as Mark Twain <laughs> contended. But yeah. um, but it is the only thing we have by way of, uh, you know, scientists can conduct experiments in laboratories and see what happens when you put hydrogen and oxygen together in a certain way, uh, certain temperatures and so on. Yeah, we can't do that with human beings. Um, mm-hmm. But we can look at what has happened. Uh, and look at it with all of the rigor and mm-hmm. care that we can muster, and uh, and make judgments from that. And yeah. uh, it could tell us a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know the 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 very notion of social studies as opposed to history, I think, which has been around all all of my life, probably all of yours too. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's really wrong. Uh, history is something distinct. History is a way of knowing a way of investigating the human condition Mm -hmm. and um it's uh a a great (laughs) it's very hard to generalize from it yeah it's uh, it's a great pile of specifics of not rules but exceptions to the rule but uh as i say it's the only laboratory we have right and so we, we we ought to use it right um well, I'd like to dive in maybe a little bit more to the methodology uh, in a bit, but I think since you brought up a couple of aspects, maybe we could that the the students struggle with. The other thing that that um, kind of woke the students up to a certain issue is John Quincy Adams's quote about we go not abroad for monsters to destroy. They yes. they really found that refreshing. Yeah, 
uh, yes, and there's a contrast to... I think to, that's right. Yeah. I think that is something that is... Uh, we're, you know, we're going through... And this uh, one, one thing I should tell for your listeners, um, it's funny how few people have complained about this, but I decided that I was not going to carry the book forward in great detail beyond the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the level of detail, I do go all the way up to Trump's election, but I, the, the level of detail uh, drops off. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, there's a simple reason for that. Is I, I make throughout the book the argument that we can't, uh, we have to have distance. And this distance, there's no way you can simulate distance in time. We have to have uh, distance to, uh, to, to properly evaluate things. But, but one of the reasons I leave off, too, with the Cold War is that I, I argue, and I think this is, I think this is true, um, that uh, we haven't really figured out uh, some very fundamental things about our direction as a country uh, in the wake of the Cold War. We, we, we haven't, to, to cite a very big thing, we haven't figured out whether we need the same kind of uh, military establishment and and especially vast uh, national security uh, network, net, uh, uh, intelligence, um, and so on. Uh, and, and we're really talking about CIA and and other intelligence agencies uh, associated with the Defense Department. And to some extent, the FBI too, and to right. some extent that it's involved in these things. How much of that do we need to have now? Um, we don't have the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, we have Russia, who still has all those nukes, but um, mm-hmm. but we don't have the Soviet Union as this uh, dedicated ideological foe in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do we really need to have all this? And and the, to go back to John Quincy Adams, um, you know, the idea that America would have this sort of world-spanning role that we would still have troops in Germany, in Korea, and some overwhelming percentage of the countries of the world um, uh, is, is certainly George Washington would be appalled, John Quincy Adams would be appalled. Uh, Adams's view, America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We, you know, we, we advocate for and we cheer on mm-hmm. other countries in uh, imitating uh, us and imitating the, the our Republican institutions, but they, we don't um, we don't go in and fix it ourselves. Right. Um, and this is partly, in, you know, the Greek Revolution was going on at that time, and there was some interest in in supporting democracy in in that part of the world. And that's one part one of the things that lists. And that's Adams what Adams is statement. referring to. Yeah. But but um, yeah, I think younger people are beginning to ask. Um, and, it, and as you know, because you and I've lived through this, um, this is a, there. There are waves of this. You know, when George McGovern was nominated for president in 1972, mm-hmm. uh, as the Vietnam War was actually winding down, right. um, his slogan was "Come Home, America." Mm-hmm. I think that's for a lot of young people now a very, a very resonant slogan. You know, we've got. Uh, so many domestic problems, so many, with uh, 
unemployment or and a, and a, and a uh, dependence in our economy on on uh, foreign manufacturers, read China, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, unemployed, unemployable uh, people who are uh, who, whose discontents are ripe for a political exploitation, such as we have not yet seen. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much wrong here at home. Um, our racial issues remain uh, a uh, disturbing, yeah. uh, unsolved problem in our national life. And, you know, we could go on and on. Right. Uh, the uh, out-of-control uh, budget, uh, <laughs> immigration, you know, right. the, all of the crime, all these issues mm-hmm. that are now pressing in on us in the midterm elections, um, uh, these are uh, maybe these need more attention, and maybe we should have less attention to figuring out how the you know uh, Kosovo should be, <laughs> what, how it should be governed, what should happen in Ukraine. Uh, uh, I I think there there's a lot of pro pro Ukrainian sentiment sure. among young people. I think, but yeah. There's, I think more sentiment that oh my God, here comes another quagmire, right? And uh, haven't we done this quagmire thing enough? Um, so, and, and yeah. I'm I'm merely talking here about the sentiment of I see in some of my students. Super, and it sounds like you see that see it in yours um, that maybe it's time to go back to John Quincy Adams. <laughs> yeah, and. That was that, and Washington's farewell address right. uh, were really the um, kind of uh, measuring sticks for American foreign policy up at least to the Spanish-American War, mm-hmm. and really through the through the overwhelming bulk of the 19th century, yeah. and well, and then yeah. you know uh, with certainly with the First World War, uh, it, things decisively changed, right, and. Uh, um, we held off, you know, the time that Dos Passos wrote those words that you and I have been quoting. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the United States was hell-bent on staying out of this horrific uh, European conflict, which could have had, a, uh, or easily have had a result that would have been right. calamitous for us. But we were so... Uh, Burn, feeling so burned by the First World War and so intent on staying clear as uh, Washington <laughs> and Adams had advised us to. Yeah. Uh, you so had... I think we're at an inflection point, possibly. Well, yeah, let's, um, let's talk about some of those uh, inflection points earlier on in our history. I think one of the things that's, that your book does that I've not seen other books do is kind of Walk and they might be out there. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not an expert on progressivism and so forth. But how you trace this kind of dual-headed path of the rising importance of science, along with what what uh, Rauschenbusch uh, and others called the social gospel, mm-hmm. and and how this becomes kind of a break in American, you know, other things that Washington and J.Q. Adams and others probably wouldn't have recognized uh, as as the fabric in which they wove in the Constitution. So I'm wondering if you can kind of um, walk us through that, too, because I think the students, some of them were, um, thought it was revealing, and others wanted to argue, which was great, and 
Um, so where does the, the social gospel come from, and, and how does that kind of set up a, a potential break in the American tradition? Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question, interesting to focus it on religion, which I, I, do, I guess I do give religion more attention, that's true, mm-hmm. than uh, a lot of other writers and textbooks. Because uh, I think religion is, has some, it, 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 for, it's foundational to one's worldview, mm-hmm. and uh, um, it's not just a, sort of another cultural trait, like what kind of food you eat, <laughs> or, yeah. um, or a consumer choice. Uh, it's, um, uh, so I, think, I, I do think that a lot of our historians have been lax in that. The social gospel, I think, is an effort to, um, uh, it, and it does have something to do with uh, the rising influence of of certain kinds of science, and particularly biological science, particularly in, influenced by Darwin and by the doctrine of natural selection, which is a posits a me- mechanistic non-teleological uh, universe, the one in which the, 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 um, uh, there, there's no end in, the, in Aristotle's sense of the term. You know, Aristotle says nature does nothing in vain, it's all directed towards an end, a telos. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that uh, conception of nature had disappeared. And, um, and uh, as had a kind of, there was a kind of, had been a an openness to the supernatural element in religion, to um, the uh, uh, you know the miracles of Jesus, the healing miracles, the the the, uh, the supernaturalism of Easter, of Christmas, mm-hmm. of you know God uh, becoming incarnate. Uh, uh, these are central things in the in the Christian story. Well, what if? What if they've been superseded by science? You know, and, and I think a certain sector of the educated community um, saw it that way. And so, how, but how do we retain the morally formative aspects of Christianity in light of the, the progress that's been made in science? And mm-hmm. um, how, do we do we just sort of operate in a kind of dualistic way that we have? Uh, one set of explanations for Monday through Saturday and a different set of explanations on Sunday, or do we adapt uh, religion to uh, conform more closely to what we're doing Monday through Saturday and uh, and actually use it as a tool of reform? That's the thing about Rauschenbusch. It's right. not just a theological adaptation, but it's it's a way of saying, you know, we... We have it in our power. In fact, it is our responsibility to build the kingdom of God here and now. Mm-hmm. This is not something uh, that's uh, uh, going to happen after the millennial is going to be a, a work of the Holy Spirit and not of man. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's in it's in our hands. We have the tools to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing is again, according to the social gospel, is essentially what um, the more supernaturalist uh, orthodox Christianity is pointing towards. It's just that we have the power to do it now. Right. Uh, and uh, and, and that, that all of the things that Jesus talked about as being 
characteristics of um, of heaven, of uh, our sort of sanctified state, um, the end of time, mm-hmm. um, were actually metaphors for what society could be here and now. So it, it's a uh, it, it, it's a, another way of making the word become flesh, <laughs> the <laughs> substitute for for the story of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, um, so I think, you know, in one way you could see if you're a very liberal Protestant, this looks like a very logical sure. direction to go in. If you're not a liberal, if you're a very orthodox or, as we came to say in the 20th, early 20th century, fundamentalist uh, Protestant, right. um, differently. And then, of course, Catholics are uh, actually had less struggled less with this issue for various reasons, right. but uh, it, it was still until, I would say, the 1930s or so, uh, a, a overwhelmingly culturally dominant Protestant makeup in the mm-hmm. country. So so these inter- intramural struggles amongst Protestants are, are really of central importance. Right. Uh, there was a little bit of a social gospel in, in on the Catholic side of things, but not, it was mainly a Protestant right. movement. Well, you mentioned oh, uh, um, South Dakota Senator George McGovern, whose yes. whose father was a Methodist pastor. Um, would you put him in that kind of the inheritor of the social gospel tradition? Yeah, I would. I would. I think he's very in- influenced on my. He'd be. I think he was still with us. I think he'd be proud to say so. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, you know, there's there's a and there's a tremendous generosity um, in that view. Again, Methodists. In general, uh, Methodist, you know, come, it comes out of Anglicanism, comes out of the Church of England, but it's much more social reform oriented. Right. Um, evangelicalism in general was was in the nineteenth century was much more social reform oriented, more more this worldly oriented. Um, so, and Methodists were, you know, they were they were involved not just in, uh, uh, you know, sort of improving the devotional life of of believers, but they were out kind of trying to uh, get temperance laws passed. And, right. Uh, right. To, in England, you know, uh, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb and other historians have have given a huge credit to the Methodists for kind of turning things around with the, the English working class, who were, uh, you know, for mm. various reasons, sinking into a... a uh, a very bad state you right. know, through alcoholism and other things. And so, so uh, yeah, Methodism always saw itself. You know, Hillary Clinton comes out of a Methodist tradition, and uh, um, I don't know how devout she is. I think she, she periodically wants to be known as devout. So, um, uh, but uh, I, I think that the idea that that the purpose of of the Christian faith is is the reform of the human condition, in mm-hmm. part, is very much a part of that Methodist tradition. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I didn't know that about McGovern, that, that his, his father was a Methodist minister. Right. But it right. sure makes sense. It, do, it does kind of line up, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and by the way, it also lines up that he himself was a college professor. Yes. Um, a history professor. One of the things you, you see know, in things. this generation of the progressives is a lot of them were people who came out of ministerial families, out of very devout families, mm-hmm. 
and may, maybe they weren't quite as devout, uh, or or they wanted to find a way to meld their their religious convictions with their social conscience. Mm-hmm. And someone like John Dewey, who in, in a way, in many ways, is the quintessential progressive, is a perfect example of that. He was uh, came out of a Congregationalist background. Um, he uh, even went when he was at the University of Michigan. Uh, uh, and then, of course, he went to Chicago from there, but uh, and then Columbia. But uh, he was part of the, uh, you know, the equivalent of intervarsity. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, at, at that time, I can't remember what it was called, but uh, it was uh, it was a um, evangel- evangelical, but also social reform oriented organization. And um, you know, he was never a. <laughs> A uh, charismatic or Pentecostal type, right. uh, but he was, uh, but he was re- religious. And at the at the end of his career, he wrote a book, kind of uh, unsuccessful, but it, it called "A Common Faith," which is an effort to oh. arrive at a sort of religious perspective that's perfectly compatible with modern science and right. and it, it embraces all religions. And that's very characteristic. I think the, these are people who. The whole Protestant social uplift, um, uh, moral purity uh, kind of, of interest is there in the early progressives. They they were uh, you know they were not just technocrats. They saw right. themselves as being involved with uh, soul craft. You know, there's that saying, "Statecraft is soul craft." That's a that's a quintessentially progressive or Whig idea. Uh-huh. Uh, that that it's one of the responsibilities of government is to improve uh, the souls of of the constituents. So that's why you have things like prohibition, and they, you know the the prohibition was uh, strongly supported by by progressives. Not all of them, but right. um, and some of them saw that it wasn't going to be a wise thing to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, a lot of them saw it as part of this. This effort to raise the raise the lot of the the, the suffering masses by uh, improving their um, habits and manners mm-hmm. and way of life, their hygiene, you know, uh, all of these things, which um, it, it can seem like nothing but the most kind, compassionate, generous interest in people's lives. But it can also seem like being terrible budinskis. <laughs> and it works, you know, people who are yeah. trying to uh, uh, colonize the lives of other people with right. uh, a culture that's alien to them. So that yes. um, the Protestant uh, aversion to drinking, which I've now mentioned several times, yeah. but, uh, was, uh, you know, obviously not shared by Italians, let's just say. Right. Um, or the Germans and, who immigrated uh, to Italians had, They drank a lot. Yeah. They had big families. Yeah. They lived in... Yeah, and the, the, these were not uh, the, the, the uh, tendency in Protestant families was increasingly towards limitation of family size, birth control, um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, worrying about you know some flirtation with eugenics even. Yeah, um, and some of this plays out in these uh, cultural antagonisms between mm-hmm. Protestants and Catholics in particular, because Catholics you know had. Uh, Irish and Italian 
Catholics, mm-hmm. the Irish, I should have mentioned the Irish first, uh, the view of alcohol is very different. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, one thing I would say in defense of, of, of them and of the progressives is that, it, and there, there are some really good studies of this, careful studies by historians who have shown that actually, um, in some ways, prohibition, for all the terrible and corrosive effects it had, and I'm not defending it at all, it did make a significant dent in the nation's you know, rate of the consumption of alcohol and the rates of alcoholism and so on. All of these things were demonstrably affected by, uh, by prohibition. So it wasn't a complete flop in in the objective that it set for itself. Right. It was a flop because it eroded the rule of law right. by uh, imposing on the American people a law that they were not going to obey. To abide by, the, right. The, the, most, the most influential elite people were simply not going to obey mm-hmm. that law. So that's something something to keep in mind. Yeah. We have, again, not, not everything is the same, but, um, right. you know... Uh, the um, part of the well, a, a podcast we had a few episodes ago talked about the progressive movement in South Dakota politics, and and there was a reference uh, to Governor Norbeck, and you may not be too familiar with with uh, Peter Norbeck, who was a popular politician in the teens and twenties and into the thirties. He served uh, twice as governor and two terms in the Senate, and um, he really got a lot of. He was he was a I would call him a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, yeah. Did a lot of public spending uh-huh. in order to help the farmer um, battle disadvantageous prices and other things that might come along. Mm-hmm. And started state um, uh, projects and really um, increased spending and uh, in kind of ways that mirrored his hero, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and that begged the question, um, Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson are both progressives, but yet they're in different parties. What would you say is the daylight between the two men? Uh, I, you know, that's interesting because it, it, Wilson, when when um, when they ran against one another in 1912, mm-hmm. you know, they they each had, uh, uh, you know, a party party platform. You know, Roosevelt had the new nationalism, right, uh, and Wilson's was a new freedom, um, and. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was running on a kind of what I would call a consolidationist platform. That is, yeah. you know, everybody's worried about big business, big, 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 you know, and, and that, that the, the fear of monopoly. Uh, Roosevelt wasn't as bothered about that. He has his reputation as a trust buster, but he's not really uh, that much of one. He's much more interested in regulating large combinations for the, the public good. So, um, so he was not for breaking breaking up big businesses, and Roosevelt. I mean, excuse me, Wilson. On the other hand, um, at least in his platform, so had a kind of um, I would say almost neo Jacksonian aspect to it. Mm-hmm. That um, that you know build up the, the notion of the antitrust laws that, and make them stronger and, and agencies to enforce antitrust. And once he became president, <laughs> all that kind of evaporated and. And uh, um, I think uh, you know, there were specific issues that the two differed on, or T.R. and uh, and Wilson. Sure. Um, entry into the First World War 
which was, I mean, Teddy was, you know, just gnashing his teeth over Wilson's slowness to get involved in this thing. He, Roosevelt had been an openly, openly imperialist Mm -hmm. in his views of foreign policy in America, um, should have its place in the sun. We needed the Great White Fleet. We needed the Spanish-American War. Right. Which we needed like a hole in the head, but we, <laughs> we, uh, we did it. Uh, and uh, we needed to have uh, islands in the Pacific for coaling stations so that we could support this fleet, support worldwide commerce. And you know, some of this makes perfect sense. Uh, I don't want to make it... I, I think we didn't need the Spanish-American War. That created enormous mm-hmm. problems. But... Um, uh, and Wilson was less, less not, not, he was not averse to interventions in, in Latin America, for example, but, uh, but, but he wanted to stay out of the war. And he won the election in 1960, re-election, partly on that slogan, although he almost lost. That's something that's right. not, it, how close he came. Yeah. If he hadn't been running against Charles Evans Hughes, he, 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 almost anybody could have beaten him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, and, and Charles Evans Hughes, uh, if had Charles Evans Hughes had not uh, won California, which wasn't as important a state in that time, but uh, it could have been different. Anyway, so Wilson squeaked through. He was, um, it's something Roosevelt was not. Um, he was a, a masterful legislative director. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Maybe the first in American history to have these Lyndon Johnson-like skills of guiding, mm-hmm. formulating legislation and guiding it through uh, the Congress. Uh, he just enormously he turned out to be. You know, he'd only been a college professor and a college president. He'd never had. Um, um, you know, he didn't have the kind of political experience that most people have coming. And he'd been governor right. of of New Jersey, but he didn't have national political experience um but he was very good very good uh, and i say this is one of his non-admirers but very good right. at um the task of being an active and hands-on administrator kind of like a his conception of a prime minister he always thought they but the, the british system in that respect was better because right. the um the leader the executive branch was also the leader of the of the dominant the majority party, mm-hmm. and uh, he thought that was good mm-hmm. for getting things done. Wilson and, and something Wilson and Roosevelt both had in common is a real um, disdain. I think is not too for the Constitution. I don't think that's too uh, much to say. They mm-hmm. Wilson especially was quite articulate about this uh, about how the Constitution was outmoded um, in general uh, Roosevelt too did never missed an opportunity to uh, uh, to disparage the Constitution it's a famous line when uh, uh, there was the nation was facing a coal strike and uh, Roosevelt was talking about just seizing the mines and mm-hmm. people said yeah but you can't that that would be unconstitution Roosevelt unconstitutional and Roosevelt said to hell with the Constitution when the people want coal. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, this, this is uh, 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 this, this disdain for the Constitution, which is, I think, part of the progressive movement, is very much exemplified in 
these two leading figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say just about uh, Norbeck and and uh, the, the the Great Plains states in general. You do have this yeah. phenomenon that people sometimes call prairie populism, right? That is different from progressivism. It, it overlaps in some ways. I don't know whether Norbeck fits. Uh, uh, you know, he may fit the Teddy Roosevelt category better, mm-hmm. um, but certainly in other states, in Oklahoma, and, um, uh, which is a, you know, newly part of the Union uh, this time, and Nebraska, you, you have you have some pretty wild characters. Yeah, uh, who are in Kansas? Um, you know, uh, John Brown. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so. Uh, <laughs> And they're much more radical. They really want to um, to you know, impose the eight-hour uh, workday and uh, you know uh, have uh, nationalization of, uh, all, of 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 the utilities and mm-hmm. so on. They, they go further than the progressives. The progressives really wanted to regulate capitalism. They didn't want to eliminate the populists. Sometimes come close to being sort of. Um, uh, you know, prairie socialists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. In in uh, the American setting, and uh, and there's a component of the labor movement that's drawn to the to right. populism also. Right. So I think that's a. It, it, I, 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 I want. I always want to insist on this distinction to students because I think it's part of what we're dealing with today. Is that um, the, the 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 way in which progressivism is tied to the expert knowledge of an elite and educated class that um, is um, trained in the science of administration. Mm-hmm. That, that, that whole aspect of the technocratic um, progressive ideal is very different from the populist notion that the, the people uh, considered broadly that the people's um, opinions should rule, so that uh, we're in a time where um, the 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 left of the of the of uh, the, the political spectrum is much more technocratic, elitist, if you could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Much more. Um, you saw it in the COVID thing. There's a much more of a tendency to 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 defer to. Scientific experts to the scientific establishment. Um, mm-hmm. That this is, I think, part of the, uh, the progressive outlook, and uh, uh, we also the populist outlook is let the people decide what they want for themselves, and um, even if it's a wrong thing, <laughs> the people have yeah. the right to be wrong right. uh, to, gov- to govern themselves. So, so it's an interesting fault line. Uh, I mean. Uh, Look, uh, nobody wants to have our nuclear power plants being run by populists who <laughs> <laughs> don't know any physics. But, That's true. Uh, yeah. But, but on the other hand, um, at some point, uh, it it has to be there has to be a kind of sense that well, the people are the ones who own the polity. A republic is a res publica, a public thing. It belongs to the people. So. Mm-hmm. At some point, um, you, you need to bring that in. So, how you do it and maintain the kind of technologies that we have now, like nuclear power, 
um, mm-hmm. it's a real problem. Yeah. But uh, but one that uh, we're not alone in having in no. the world. Everybody no. is faced with the same thing. I, I noticed on your uh, publication list, there's an interesting title, and, and I'm going to maybe have you back to talk about this book, but Why Place Matters, Geography, oh, Identity, yeah. and Civic Life in Modern America. I was wondering, how did that, writing that book, what would be the argument there, and then how did that inform how you put this, uh, the Land of Hope, together? Well, I don't know. The last question, I'm not sh- I, I, maybe it's like we talk about it, I can see, because, yeah. you know, sometimes you realize that things are, that you don't link in your mind really are linked, or someone else can see it better than you can yourself. But no, I, I got interested in this issue of place, partly because I thought there was nothing good being written about it, or very little good, mm-hmm. uh, that we we live in such a interconnected and mobile world where people move. I just saw uh, um, the other day a guy um, just does a name. He uses the name Proofrock. It publishes. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Micah Maddox. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I know I'm not well, but I, I, in, this, in this article about places that he's lived, he's, he said he's, lived, he's moved 24 times wow. or something like that. Some enormous number. Mm-hmm. He's a young guy. Uh, I mean, under 40, I guess. But, um, uh, you know, that's not unusual. It's not unusual for people to change uh, uh, their geographical location uh, several times, many times. And I have myself um, uh, to, to move, to tr- travel easily to and from other cultures. And, and, uh, um, and we, when we buy houses, we always buy, we buy with resale in mind. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and and, and uh, things like that, you just start to realize how we're geared towards the impermanence mm-hmm. of places and how much of a difference it makes when a young person can be, can grow up not just in a stable two-parent family, which is important, but in a stable um, environment where there isn't radical change going on and, and where they aren't being uprooted and placed in a new school and all of that. So mm-hmm. it just I just started thinking about it, it, to what extent culturally is um, the impermanence of place, the, set, the fungibility of place in, in our modern way of life, something that we, um, that it influences our, our souls, frankly, that, that yeah. we have... Uh, we don't have the sort of deep-rooted uh, affections and loyalties to places and to other people we associate with those places um, that might have been the case in, in the past. Yeah. So, so what I did in that book, I, I, uh, I actually was uh, on leave of absence from my then-employer, my then um, uh, which was the University of Tennessee at that time, and... Uh, uh, I was invited to Pepperdine University in 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 the uh, ugly place called Malibu, California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rough, uh, rough assignment. Yeah, I needless to say, we didn't have much trouble deciding to say yes to that offer. So we went out there, and then I landed there, and and had went to lunch in this unbelievably beautiful place in one of the canyons. And mm. the dean said to me, "Well, now you know." Um, 
we're going to want you to put together a conference while you're here. I said, what? Yeah, nothing was ever said about this before. But, but um, and, and, they, and I also had to raise the money for the conference. So, uh. But, but I, I just went right to it. You know, and uh, and that this was, you know, he said, "What would you, what would you like to do?" And I was sitting, thinking. I've been thinking through the whole lunch how, well, what would it do to your heart and your soul if you grew up in some place like this? And you, and, and this was your daily diet uh, for your, the diet for your eyes and mm-hmm. and uh, senses in general. So uh, I said, "Well, what about place? <laughs> the sense of place is fine." Uh, so I kind of studied up and found who all the top people were writing about this. And I got a fair number of them to come, and we had a big conference uh, in the spring, um, uh, which uh, and, and it had, had a very nice title, uh, A Place in the World. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was really the, the whole globalization kind of theme and how disruptive that is of human flourishing. Yeah. That's really the thing we're trying to go back to. Right. Uh, very um, Aristotelian ideas about what are the preconditions of human flourishing. And uh, and not all the speakers were on board with that. Some of them were like, this This is, uh, uh, there's one guy who, uh, I, I can't remember his name right now, but he's uh, kind of famous. But he wrote a book about spending a year living in an airport Ugh. at LA, uh, LAX, oh uh, LA gosh. International Airport, um, and said, well, it was okay. Yeah. So not everybody was on the same page as, as me on this, but right. that's one of the things you do. You want to have a variety of opinions. Sure. So, um, and, you know, the, you can make a case that place can be a confining thing. Mm-hmm. You think of how... Uh, when maybe maybe uh, it wasn't that long ago, maybe when you and I were boys, uh, uh, people would still speak about knowing your place, whether sure. to referring to women, to African Americans, you know, know your place. It, 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 it's a, a way of saying, you know, you belong in the back of the bus, or yeah. you don't have that uh, a, a right to that fundamentally American of sense of striving to be all mm-hmm. that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so place, you know, in that sense, if I'm trying to rise in the world, I don't want to stay in the same place. Uh, so there's a, there's a double-edged quality to the concept. Right. Anyway, the conference was so so great that uh, Encounter Books wanted to do, um, to publish a collection of the, the, the oh, essays okay. from it, so that's what we did. I see. So okay. it's only a small part of it is me. I see. I have. Um, yeah. I wrote the introduction in one of the essays that we have. Some wonderful essays in there. Dana Joya, who was oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. the former yeah. director of the National Endowment for the Arts, poet yep. laureate of California, yeah. and and a, I think, for my money, the very best poet of our time. Yeah. Um, uh, he was in there, and and he, he spoke on why L.A. is is a place. Because mm-hmm. for a lot of people, L.A. is seen as the quintessential non-place. Mm-hmm. Everybody's from somewhere else. They're always on their way to someplace else. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, the life of the city is somehow out on the freeways rather than in the homes, <laughs> in public places. It, it's, uh, there's all these cliches. Well, he, I think, makes a very good case for L.A. being a very much a place. Uh, but why is it that some places are, 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 have a quality? We say, now that's a place, you know. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Paris, you know, the left yeah. bank, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Black Hills. Yeah. Uh, there is a place. There and is that, a place. That has an identifiable ethos and mm-hmm. geography, certainly, to it. Um, yes, uh, as Red yeah. Cloud would say, it's the heart of everything that is. <laughs> Who says that? Red Cloud. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, I I think that's that's a that's a place for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but you know, the cities, uh, you know, and particularly parts of the cities, the Jewish ghetto in Rome, you know, one of the most extraordinary places mm-hmm. I've ever been. But uh, and Rome itself, the whole the city as a whole. So what is it that makes a place a place? And, 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 and some stretch of suburbs west of the Chicago Loop is not a place, even though people live there and they make their lives there and all that. Right. Right. But it, so what is it that makes it that, that? So we had urban planners, both as part of the program and then in the audience. We got you know, most of the major urban planners, and they're associated with cities. Yeah. in Southern California to come. So uh, uh, it, it was a great event. A and I'm discussion. really glad yeah. that there's something lasting that came out of that uh, in the form of the book. You brought up the Black Hills and as a, as a place that has a sense of place. And I was there just a few days ago at Custer State Park and speaking to a group. And, and as you drive out of them, in my mind and personally, it has always been... Um, uh, I don't know. Mysticism is quite right, but it's it's definitely a place that has a feeling and a sense of its own. Oh, it's yeah. distinct from. No, I yeah. I've been there once, and I it was unforgettable. Yeah, you know, really uh, spectacular. So, yeah. I I agree with you. I wasn't just saying that to be uh, yeah. Yeah. sort of friendly. <laughs> I I think it it is it is a place that I if I'm asked to rattle off a list of places. I, yeah. That, that often is one that I would mention. Right. You had a bit of a discussion about Frederick Jackson Turner, and the students also appreciated that. I Just maybe refresh uh, the audience's memory who may kind of recall that name. What? Oh, why, sure. why is you know, Frederick Jackson American Turner... Historians. Right. Why is he one of the greatest ones, and what does he say about uh, the part of the, this part of the country, South Dakota? Well, this actually relates ultimately to something in my background, which I, uh, I think you mentioned at the beginning that I got my doctorate at Johns Hopkins right. in Baltimore. Well, that was uh, the first university in the United States founded after the, al- along the model of the German, re- modern German research university. Yeah. And it was, it was so uh, before that, people had to go to Germany to get their PhDs, and uh, um, John Hopkins and then Harvard and, and others uh, started doing it. But um, it, it was... Um, you know, it's very much based on a kind of application of the scientific method to history. And um, Turner went to, uh, uh, he was from Wisconsin, uh, so from the West. In those days, that was the West. Um, and he, uh, he uh, Turner came to, to Hopkins, and uh, he was a student that had inculcated in him 
or at least they tried to, this idea that all of what was good about American democracy came from Europe, and it was the seeds that had been planted, um, or they, well, they called it germ. Mm-hmm. It was the germ theory of American history, that American democracy arose out of the, the European germs and that it didn't have any negative kind of disease connotation. That's right. how the seeds is really a better uh, uh, rendering of what they were saying. Yeah. And uh, uh, Turner reacted against this, partly because he was a Westerner. Um, mm. he, he, um, he thought the American environment had uh, a very profound effect on... Uh, Europeans would come over with their European customs and the European ways of doing things, and they would adapt. They would have to adapt. And so what would come out of that was something that was distinctively American. Mm. So in a way, he was a kind of a, it was a kind of a patriotic <laughs> approach to the, the, the history um, and uh, saying America kind of made itself. It, it didn't mm-hmm. just rely on the transposition of these these European elements. Right. So um, he and, and he worked on this. He he uh, ended up still a very young man coming up with this idea that the frontier was the key thing. That it was the existence of a frontier, um, a relatively unsettled land, uh, although say, you know, it was occupied parts of it, many parts, many places, uh, by uh, the indigenous people. Sure. Uh, uh, and that's one of the many criticisms that's been lobbed at the attorney uh, mm-hmm. theory. It treats, it treats as if there was a, just a vast, empty space. Right. But um, leave that aside for a moment. It, uh, the, um, you know, the westward expansion, and by the way, T.R. loved Turner. Uh, oh, yeah. Loved Turner's work. Um the expansion westward was this constant renewing of America because of civilization coming into contact with that which was wild, that which was untamed, that which was uh, unrefined. And uh, in that process, in that, um, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, that that sort of um, uh, cultural uh, Nexus that mm-hmm. that sort of encounter uh, out of that comes a sort of renewing of the national vitality. Mm-hmm. Um, T. R. was very concerned about us becoming over civilized, and it's one of the reasons he liked boxing and football. He was a great proponent of football yep, yep. as a um, uh, because these were tonic against over civilization um, and. Uh, Turner's theory fit in with this, that, um, and, and actually T.R. at a certain point in his life, as you know, came out to Dakota Territory and, right. uh, is after the death of his wife and uh, to sort of renew himself. Yeah. And uh, so I think he personally experienced this, but back to Turner. Turner formulated this as a theory. He has a famous speech that he gave at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. Right. You know, the... the uh, 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, um, called the significance of the frontier in American history, and and it is uh, it's an effort to explain how this process worked. But in the end, he says 
everything that's great about America, particularly the character of American democracy, is the product of the existence of a frontier. But now, as as of the 1890 census, right. um, that was the sort of trigger that he used to start this. As the as of the 1890 census, the, these conditions no longer obtained. There was no longer an unbroken frontier. There's actually still a lot of frontier, but yeah. it, it was it was a kind of a big deal to people like, are we going to lose our national character because we don't have a frontier anymore? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Turner really built on that with his, his essay. And it became um, a very important stimulus to a reorientation of American history towards thinking about how the American environment formed distinctive institutions. Um, that w- it wasn't just America imitating Europe. Um, mm-hmm. It was America innovating and, uh, um, uh, and, and creating new forms that, uh, in, in all sorts of areas of life. Um, so that was a great inspiration, I think, to historians. Uh, and he, he, he said the West was the most American part of America, and okay. that was something people <laughs> in the West love yeah. to hear. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and after all, it's sort of true, isn't it? But <laughs> say that sort of voce. Yeah. But, uh, it, 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 uh, I think it's still true. And certainly there's a lot of us that feel it. That, yeah. um, a lot of Europeans that come to America, and when they get to either, you know, your, your neck of the woods yeah. or to Utah, to the Grand Tetons, to Yellowstone, Yosemite, whatever, the Grand Canyon, they think, oh, this is, this is it. Yeah. This, is, uh, yeah. this is the center of the universe, as right. Red Cloud would say. Yeah. So um, uh, that, that, that's a and, and I have there's a little anecdote that I tell in, about Turner. I just love this. It, it's in his biography by Ray Allen Billington. But, uh, oh, yeah. He, he uh, at the end of, end of the, toward the end of his career, he, he moved to Harvard. And he, and he just dried up as uh-huh. a historian. He didn't do anything. He had all these projects, all sorts of things under contract. He didn't write any of them. Oh no! And uh, and and which is sad. But I think it was he, he was like, you know, the mythological character Antaeus who gathered his strength from contact to to the earth. Uh-huh. Um, in some way, taking Turner out of the West. Um, he taught for a long time at the University of Wisconsin, and it was much more productive there. Right, so right. it was a mistake to come to Harvard. Yeah. That, that's why every time Harvard asks me to join their faculty, I say no. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> damped <laughs> in, uh, Fred, no you you dampened Frederick Turner, but, so yeah, I'm done. You can edit yeah. that out. <laughs> but uh, um, it... it uh, um, the story is that apparently, uh, frequently, particularly on warm nights, uh, Turner would sleep on his porch in a tent. Um, and I, I don't think he did this in the dead of winter because yeah. you know Cambridge can be pretty cold. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was something he liked to do, and I I've always found that very poignant. Hmm. This, this this image of the, the great historian, you know, living in Harvard, but sleeping in a tent on his porch to kind of feel some sense of communion with right. the world he left behind. Right. Um, well, we see but, the, uh, 
that's an interesting story. Uh, and we see the connections, too, because uh, Billington was George McGovern's dissertation advisor or, or professor at uh, Northwestern. Um, so, I, I did not know that, yeah. although that's perfectly logical. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, Billington was one of the great historians of the West, right, uh, right. that generation. Right. Um, uh, and uh, it's interesting. There, I was just, it just happens. I was going through some files, trying to figure out what I could throw away, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the day before yesterday. But I came across a file. I gave a talk at Hillsdale on Turner before I joined the faculty back in like 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had this big thick file of all the things I you know consulted and and uh, and there's a uh, article in there by um, Patricia Limerick. Oh, yes. Limerick, who's who, who's uh, one of the generation of sort of new Western historians who emphasize all the things that the old generation didn't, although it's there, you know. Uh, there, a lot of times the reformers among historians, they, they emphasize, um, they overemphasize uh, certain things and, uh, and don't give credit to the previous. You know, you would think that no textbooks before, you know, the year before last ever mentioned slavery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it, that's bizarre to claim that. I learned all about it in the 50s, you know, when, yeah. uh, so, uh, well, 60s, but, um, but, but sometimes they're not so, you know, anyway, Pat, Patty Limerick, I know mm-hmm. her, she's, she's a very nice person, mm-hmm. um, teaches at the University of uh, Colorado, and she's famous especially for this book called Legacy of Conquest, in which she sees the history of the West, primarily the history of the conquest of, you know, the, the, of the, the indigenous peoples, the Mexicans, uh, the land, you know, the exploitation mm-hmm. of the land by mining companies and so on. It's, 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 um, it's a very, uh, it's an important book. It's an amusing book. Um, it's very one-sided, yeah. very one-sided. And it's a sustained assault on Turner. Oh, okay. That's the book with which she really made her career. Yeah. Well, what I found is she'd written in a, um, I forget where it appeared, but an essay called Turnerians All. And she ends up almost, almost apologizing to him for, for being so unfair to him. Oh. Uh, and, um, and, and says, we are all, um, Proteges of Frederick Jackson Turner, wow. you know whether we want to, whether we like him or not, whether we want to think of him that way or not, we mm-hmm. all owe deeply his uh, insight. So this is why I like her so much, as I think she, unlike a lot of historians, she has this sense that. Um, let me put it this way: I think some historians are laboring under the idiot delusion that, <laughs> that, that uh, the now of their scholarship That's right. supersedes everything that came before. That's right. And I think that is just barbarism to think that way. Right. But it's sort of what you get in graduate school, that, uh, that, that, that notion. And, uh, uh, well, the so, recent, the uh, recent uh, social media attack on the president of the American Historical Association oh, yes. is just... Um, it's very telling about our profession. It's very sad. Unbelievable. And there's so much wrong with that. Um, 
none of the major professors were doing this. It was all these people from very, very minor schools that, that um, and yet he just crumbled. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand it, and, and I, I, I thought the article was pretty good. Um, uh, it said well, something it, that very much needed to be said. Yeah, it raised good points. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, um, uh, Bill, uh, thanks a lot for this wide-ranging conversation, and uh, we dealt more with uh, with more things than just the Land of Hope. But it's an amazing book, and I I wish uh, it, to have all the access. The, the b- title of the book is Land of Hope: An Invitation to the Great American Story, and the guest has been uh, Will McClay of Hillsdale College. Thanks a lot, Will. Thank you. I'm really happy to have been. This has been fun. Good, good. <laughs> you can't ask more than that from an interviewer that, that he makes it fun. Oh, well, excellent. That's good. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.